You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So we bought all the databases. We could then compare those databases with all these anecdotes that we had heard over lunch, dinner, tea, coffee, dessert. And we came up with the most remarkable economic discovery I've ever seen in my entire life, which is that between 1996 and 1999, the management of Gazprom had stolen oil and gas reserves equal to the size of Kuwait. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital and head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Bill. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Great to see you. Yeah, same here. So before we jump into your trades, and I have a feeling they might be a little out of the ordinary of, um, of, of our normal trades. But before before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up and what were the early years like for you? Well, my my trades are, are, are going to be out of the ordinary and my background is out of the ordinary. So I am... Um, uh, I grew up in in Chicago, born in Princeton, New Jersey, but I come from a very unusual family. My grandfather was the uh, head of the American Communist Party in between 1932 and 45. And so when I was going through my teenage rebellion in the 1970s, I was trying to figure out a way of rebelling from this family of communists. And uh, growing my hair long, it grew into an afro. You can't quite tell that now, but um, strangely, <laughs> that didn't upset my family. Uh, I followed the Grateful Dead around the country for a few months, and also that didn't upset my family. But then I, I put on a suit and tie and became a capitalist, and that really did upset my family. So became a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School, uh, graduated in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And um, as I was trying to figure out what to do after business school, I had an epiphany one day, which is that if my that the Berlin Wall has just come down and and my grandfather was the biggest communist in America— I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And and so that's what I set out to do. And I eventually um, moved to Russia in um, 1996. I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund, which um, uh, grew eventually to become the largest investment fund in the country. So I I achieved my dream. So what sort of impression as a kid sort of what sort of impression did that sort of you know interesting family background leave on you i mean you meant, mentioned you were rebellious because you not only had activists but you also come from a long line of academics as well don't you yeah so my grandfather was the communist and um my father and his two brothers they all became um, mathematicians which my grandmother was russian she was a jewish intellectual and and there was no higher calling for from a for a Russian Jewish intellectual than for somebody to go into sciences. And within the sciences, there was no higher calling than to be a theoretical scientist. And mathematician was the top of the top of the heap. And so, top of the heap, they all became mathematicians. My father skipped high school, went to MIT at the age of fourteen, finished when he was seventeen, and then uh, went to Princeton and got his PhD in mathematics from Princeton by the time he was 21. And so my brother followed in his footsteps, went to the University of Chicago after skipping high school at the age of 14, <laughs> Phi Beta Kappa in physics by 17. So this was the family I came from. 
And so you can understand why I had sort of a, a need to rebel because, you know, there's no way that, you know, I, I just was just a normal person. I, you know, wasn't doing any of this skipping high school. I, and so I needed to find some way of like distinguishing myself. And, and so I set out on a completely different path. So this brings us to your first trade, but your first trade, you call one of your worst, and that's going to Russia in 1992, right after completing your studies in Stanford, instead of going to work at a firm like all of your other friends. So that that's definitely going to be hindsight, but take us back to that time. What what were you thinking? What did you hope your Russia experience would be? It looked like you were sort of, it was like a gold rush, right? You were going to go find your fortune and, and define yourself. So... Um, I moved to Russia in 1996. This was at the point when Russia was just beginning its privatization program. So Russia, previous, I guess, before um, you know the Berlin Wall came down, was part of the Soviet Union. Um, as the Soviet Union, it was a communist country. Everything was owned by the state. The state set the prices, set the you know salaries. Everyone was equal, etc. And the whole thing was bankrupt. It didn't work. Nobody, you know, nobody worked. Everyone pretended to work. It was just a terrible terrible economic experiment that didn't work. And so after the Berlin Wall came down, after the Soviet Union collapsed, and after Russia became an independent country, one of the things that they declared was that they were going to create capitalism. Now, how do you create capitalism? Well, the one thing they did was they decided they were going to give away all state property away effectively for free one way or another to the people. And so they embarked on this mass privatization program where they created all sorts of different schemes to supposedly give away everything to the people, what ended up happening was not by, not what they designed. Instead of everybody benefiting, 22 oligarchs ended up controlling like more than 40% of the gross domestic product of Russia, which was highly unfair. It wasn't anything what they envisaged, and it's, of course, led to all the terrible problems that we have today. But for me, at that time, they, they controlled 40%, but there were little crumbs falling off the table. And effectively, by giving everything away, this, the government created a sort of chaotic market situation. But the valuation of the companies um, that they had put out there, the oil companies and gas companies and electricity companies, was like at a 99.7% discount to the price of comparable companies in the West. And so you could buy, you know, Gazprom or Luke Oil at, you know, pennies per barrel of reserves when when these companies, if you were to buy them, buy the same type of companies, Exxon, BP, you know, whatever, Shell, they would trade at $20 per barrel of reserves. And so it was really, truly like the gold rush. And, the, and, and you didn't have to have that much imagination. People say, sometimes ask me, you know, you're, they say your, your father was a mathematician. You must have been really good at math. Well, the only math that I had to do was simple division. You know, you divide the market cap of the companies by, by the number of barrels of oil reserves and you get up this unbelievable discount. And so then, then the only question is, will they let you keep it or not? Because if they, if they take it away, it's worth zero. But if they don't take it away, it's probably worth 10, 20, 30, 40 times the amount of money that you invested. And, you know, I, I didn't have any specific insight, but I just said, you know, probably there's a 50% chance they take it away and we, we walk away with zero. And there's probably a 50% chance that you make 10, 20, 30, 40 times your money. And I thought that was a pretty good bet. And, and, um, and so I, I went around and set up this investment fund. And I told my uh, prospective clients, I said, look, look, you know, take 1% or half a percent of your money and 
try this. If, if it doesn't work, you've lost half a percent of your money, maybe 1%. If it does work, maybe it turns into 20% of your net worth, which would be meaningful. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was a compelling argument for, for a lot of people. And that, yeah. that's what was the basis for my business and my investment fund. So it's very much like prospecting. I mean, it's kind of frontier, right? And and you're kind of in the middle of this huge change. What were your initial impressions of Moscow like? I assume you lived in Moscow. When you got there, did you speak Russian? Did you did it seem like an exciting time? Did you think this is so different from what I'm used to? Like, what did you think? You're very young. I mean, you just out of Stanford, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I I think I moved there when I was like 28 years old. It was total dangerous chaos. People were being killed left, right, and center by criminals. I mean, everybody, you know, the, oh. people ready to kill for $5,000, and there's a lot more than $5,000 sort of sloshing around in these markets. But it was also really exciting. I mean, you you literally could buy something on a Monday and then have it be worth, you know, five, 10 times on a Friday. And I was not playing with small sums. I people, my, my fund started with $25 million and grew and grew from there. And and so it was really, I mean, just like the gold rush. You, you, um, and the great thing about it was that when I got there, nobody knew anything more than I did about how to invest. Mm. It wasn't like there was a bunch of 55-year-old men who had been around for 30 years, you know, sharpening their knives and their skills and, and you know, having to work your way through some ranks. I, you know, there's an expression, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And, you know... <laughs> I showed up there and had one eye, and just by being on the ground and being one of the few Westerners who had bothered to show up there and like do the basic math and homework, I had this unbelievable competitive advantage, and and uh, and so it it really was sort of, sort of fast forward in terms of life, responsibility, and success at a very young age. Yeah, did it feel they, they're, the time is often referred to as you know the wild nineties from Russians themselves? Did it feel like that? Was there you talked about it being dangerous, but there was there also after all this time in communism, this sort of you know wealth and all all of what we think of in the kind of any roaring period for our country? Did it feel like that? It was it was totally nihilistic. I mean, it, it, it was I mean there was a very dark side to the whole thing, which is that. It was very exciting to be a business person there, but it was also very terrible to look at how this new capitalism was affecting the average Russian. And the life expectancy of a, of a male dropped to like 57 years. You know, professors had to become taxi drivers. Uh, nurses became prostitutes. Uh, art museums sold the paintings right off the walls to anyone who would buy them. It was just nihilistic chaos. No rule of law. No rule of law, no, no institutions, no police. And and it was very hard for for almost everybody there, and and um, and in a certain way, the chaos of the 1990s. This was the period when Boris Yeltsin was president. It created this opportunity for a very small number of people to get very very rich, and most everybody else suffered profoundly, the most profoundly. Mm. You know, just nothing was. There was no food. There was no safety. There was nothing, and and. Um, you know, and it was hard to hard to feel anything other than really sadness and disgust for uh, the Russian government and the way that they were set up this thing for the people. And and sort of uh, everybody in Moscow, myself included, was like longing for a uh, somebody to come in and fix the situation to t- take away this power from the oligarchs and bring it back to normal. 
That that was the feeling that everybody had in 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 Russia. Hmm. Did you consider leaving? Like when you saw that this was going on, because you know it wasn't just like one year and then there was a solution. This went on for quite some time. Well, I mean, it, so my 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 reason for being there was to be an investor. My um, logic as an investor was that yes, it's terrible, but if it goes from terrible to bad, then you make a lot of money as an investor. And I, I thought that Russia was on a trajectory from terrible to bad. And it was. And so it kind of couldn't stay the way it was because it was just too terrible. So it didn't have to become like Sweden or Canada. All it had to do was just, you know, go from like Nigeria to Brazil. And my securities would be worth a lot more money and Russians would probably be a lot happier. And that's what I was there for. And that's what I, my big bet was. So we talked about that being your worst trade, but we're just going to put that off on hold because I think we can circle back at the end and discuss why it turns out to be your worst trade. Because for the moment, it's kind of your best and worst trade because it is there is this, even though it's against the backdrop of it being very dark, you're doing very well. Um, and so I think that takes us to your second trade, which is one of your best. And it's very specific in 1997, Sedanko Russian Oil Company. So so sort of give us the, the backdrop uh, or set the scene for us. You've been in Russia what, for for several years now. How did you how did you get involved in this trade and how successful were you at this point? So the oil companies of Russia were trading at this unbelievable discount to the oil companies of the West. That was the basic premise. So I, I, I set up on the ground in Moscow, and I discover something even better than that, which is that most investors only had access to one or two Russian oil companies, which were the ones that were researched by the brokerage firms that were set up in Moscow. They decided to do research on the on the shares that had the most free float that were trading the most because they could make most commissions by buying and selling those shares. But there was many more than two oil companies. There was like 30 oil companies in Russia. And I so because I was on the ground, I wasn't reliant on anybody, I started to go around and visit them. And so I, I um, start to visit these oil companies and I come across this one oil company called Sedanko. And Sedanko was very similar to Luke Oil, but it, uh, uh, in terms of the amount of oil they produced and 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 all, all the sort of general features of it, but traded at a 90% discount per barrel of reserves to Luke Oil. So Luke Oil is trading at like a 99% discount to the Western oil companies. And I found something that's 10 times cheaper than Luke Oil. Why was it cheaper? Well, there was not a whole lot of free float. Only 4% of the shares traded on the secondary market, 96% of it was held by one Russian oligarch. So nobody bothered to do the research. But I, I, I said, well, wait a second. This is not, not that different from Luke Oil. It trades at this enormous discount. I, I um, you know, went and poked around the company as best as I could to, to see if there was some problem or some like big red flag that made it trade at this discount. And, and you know, it, it just didn't make sense. And so I bought Sedanko. And um, uh, I think I put $11 million of my fund into Sedanko, which was a lot of money for me at the time. And then I, I started telling everybody about Sedanko. And um, people said, wait a second, I don't, that didn't, so it started to rise in, in value. And then the most interesting thing happened, which is that um, uh, BP, British Petroleum, 
wanted to also invest in Sedanco. And so they negotiated a deal with the majority shareholder, uh, this Russian oligarch, to buy 10% of Sedanco at 10 times the price that I had invested in. And so my $11 million turned into more than $100 million. And this was at the very beginning of my career. This was like almost the very beginning of my fund at a time when 100, making $100 million was just like, I mean, you know, now you read these numbers, you know, you want on Bloomberg or whatever, $100 million is not a lot of money. But back then it was just the biggest amount of money ever. And it completely put me on the map financially. I had a 20% profit share of my fund. So I was going to make $20 million of, of that. My performance on my fund was, it made the, my fund the best performing fund in the world in 1997. Which is crazy. <laughs> it was just so satisfying to have, have like bet big and bet right and have it just, you know, in every different way validate my thesis that Russia was cheap and because I was on the ground, I could find things that were even cheaper. And so I just felt so good and my investors were so happy with me and everyone was patting me on the back and, you know, I was counting my winnings and, and it was just all so good. And then all of a sudden, I discovered the, like the first really dark experience that I've had in Russia, which is that the majority shareholder, a guy named Vladimir Patanin, he was the guy who owned 96%. He sold 10% to BP. For some reason, he wasn't sort of um, licking his lips with satisfaction about how he had made 10 times his money selling to BP and is still having 86% left. Somehow it just bothered him to no end that I made all this money. And he just couldn't get over it. And there, there's this famous um, Russian proverb that's about a magic fish. And so uh, let me just tell the story really quickly because I think it, yeah. it demonstrates what happened here. So, so the, the story is about a, uh, some villager comes across this magic fish and the magic fish jumps out of the water and says, congratulations, you found me. I will give you any wish you desire. And the villager says, you know, I'm thinking about like maybe a, a pile of gold or maybe a castle or a big ship to sail the high seas. And the fish interrupts the villager and says, there's one caveat. Whatever I give you, I got to give two to your neighbor. And at this point, the, the villager said, well, then it's real simple. Poke one of my eyes out. <gasps> and that that is because <laughs> he wants the neighbor to have two of his eyes. <laughs> This is this is a, this is a real Russian proverb. That is brutal. And this is how Russia is. Is like you know, the people don't worry about like um, you know their own success. They just want to. They just don't want their neighbor to be successful. And so it just bothered him profoundly that that I had made all this money. And so he organized a share issue, in which they were going to increase the capital of the company, issue a whole bunch of shares, sell it to themselves, at a huge discount to the market, and effectively steal like 75 or $80 million of the $100 million that I, dollars that I made. And this guy was a Russian oligarch, one of the biggest Russian oligarchs, one of the most powerful Russian oligarchs. So I'm sitting there, and my whole entire success has now been, yeah. been completely destroyed. He wants to take away all of the stuff. He wants to, um, and, and not only that, but it would ruin my reputation. My business would probably collapse. I would fail. I would have to leave Russia with my tail between my legs. And so I had to make a decision. What am I going to do? And I decided that I was going to fight him. And nobody had ever fought an oligarch before, and, and, uh, and I didn't really know how. And so I gathered up my team, 
and we, we made a war room in our conference room, put up white paper on the wall. And I said, we need to kind of come up with ways in which we cause this guy economic pain every day. We need to do three things a day to cause this guy economic pain, or we haven't had a successful day. What are some good ideas? And we sort of filled up the wall with ideas, and we got to work. And, and uh, the first thing I did was I, I went to the, um, all the other investors, um, who, all the other Westerners who had done business with this guy, who were doing business with this guy, and shared with them a PowerPoint presentation showing how he had just ripped us off and said, you're next. And they all started calling up. And these were big, big names, um, uh, Soros and Harvard University Endowment and all sorts of big uh, financial institutions. They all called him up and they said, you know, you can't do this. This is just not how things are done. This infuriated him. And uh, I was even more. <laughs> he had one of his underlings call me up and said, Bill, you're not playing by the rules. And I said, well, if you think I'm not playing by the rules now, Wait till you see what I'm going to do next. And by the way, at this point, I had hired 16 bodyguards. I had a lead car, a lag car, a sidecar, everyone fully armed, a guy with a submachine gun sitting in my living room. You know, I was ready, you know, I was ready for whatever was going to come my way and I was not going to back down. And so the next thing I did was I went to the media and I um, I got um, the Financial Times to write a big story about how, how he was ripping us off. And they were looking for a big oligarch story. And so they write this story. And he becomes even more infuriated and he holds a press conference and he says, Bill Browder is a terrible investor. His clients should take their money away from him immediately. He should have known I was going to do this to him. And um, at this point, I then there's every newspaper starts to write about it. And um, at the time, there was a securities regulator that hadn't ever regulated a single securities security law. But I created such a scandal that that he was forced to step in. And after a couple more big articles... Um, he canceled this dilutive share issue, and I went back to being whole. And um, <laughs> I beat an oligarch, and I survived. And that created, well, several things. One is it got me back whole financially. But secondly, it gave me a sense of confidence, and which we'll <laughs> talk about what it did to me later, to like start doing this again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So you knew that doing this was life threatening. I mean, you had all these bodyguards, so you knew this one. Did you feel at that point that it was? the Russian oligarchs that were kind of poisoning the system and behaving badly? Or did you see this as a problem throughout the government as well, as a sort of state problem? Well, at that point in time, it was an oligarch problem exclusively. The oligarchs controlled the state. Mm -hmm. The state didn't function the way a normal state functions. The oligarchs controlled everything. And so they were like the complete devil, the ruining everything for everybody. And ruining it for me, and and um, and I thought, you know, these oligarchs, you know, were just such sort of chest thumping alpha male on steroids characters, but actually they weren't. When 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 push came to shove, they were not omnipotent, and so I decided to, um, you know, go for another one. Why not take that win and leave? Um, well, I, um, you know, it's like, it's like anything else. Once you've tasted the you know, forbidden fruit, you want more. I thought, you know, if I can beat this one, I could beat another one. And so I, um, uh, I I wanted more. I was feeling 
very um, kind of powerful and I guess greedy. Um, and I wanted to do something bigger and better and more profitable and more dramatic. So now your high profile and your third trade is your best and your worst. It's actually your third and your fourth because I think it, it's really a turning point for you. And that is when you took on Gazprom in 2005. So you do it again after Sedanko, and this time your target's Gazprom, presumably a bigger target. So Gazprom was a much bigger target. Gazprom is the largest company in Russia, the largest oil and gas company in the world by a factor of 10. Gazprom in 1999, traded at a 99.7% discount to Exxon per barrel of hydrocarbon reserves. At that point in time, everybody assumed that every last cubic meter of gas and gas reserves was stolen out of the company. And so I decided to do something which had never been done before, which is uh, a stealing analysis of Gazprom. So how do you do a stealing analysis of a Russian company? You don't go to the management and say, uh, excuse me, sir, can you tell me how much money you're stealing? Because they wouldn't answer that. And they might do some other terrible things. Nor could you go to the investment banks that were set up in Moscow and ask them because they were so busy trying to get paid work from Gazprom. The last thing they wanted to do was say anything negative. And so I came up with an idea, which was to make a list of all the people I thought might know about the stealing. This included uh, ex-employees, uh, competitors, customers, suppliers, um, government officials, former government officials, anyone who might have some like, detailed knowledge of the stealing. And I made a list of these people, and then I sent out invitations to invite them to breakfast, lunch, dinner, tea, coffee, dessert. And I didn't tell them what my agenda was in advance. I just invited them. And Interestingly, like of the 40 or 45 um, people that I sent these invitations out to, like 35 said yes. They were kind of curious. What does this Western guy want to treat me to lunch for? And, and so I had my first lunch. It was with a small competitor to Gazprom. And we sat down in an Italian restaurant across the street from the Kremlin, across the river from the Kremlin, I should say. And um, we sat down and I didn't know what his response was going to be when I, when I opened up and told him what I wanted. But we sat down and ordered, and I said, well, you know, the reason I invited you here is I'm interested in understanding what's being stolen from Gazprom. Can you tell me, do you know? And that was like the moment of truth. What, is he going to get up and walk away, or what's he going to do? And instead of getting up and walking away, the guy leans forward, and he says, you can't even imagine the kind of stealing that's going on there. And he starts just rattling off scam after scam after scam. And I had a little notebook, and I was writing it all down, and turning the page and writing some more and writing some more. And, and um, he barely touched his meal. And we're like two hours and 20 minutes into it. I had another meeting I had to go to. I had to cut it short. And it turned out that the reason he was so helpful is not because he wanted to be helpful. He was just infuriated that like some small group of people got to steal all that money and he didn't. And so and he, he didn't want them to get away with it. And so he shared with me this information and everybody else did too. I, and so I had filled up two full notebooks with unbelievable data and, and um, sort of stories and, and anecdotes about all the stealing. So I, I filled up these notebooks, but the problem is that, that it was clear there was something gigantic going on at Gazprom, some terrible fraud. But it's hard to, for me to know what I could do about it because 
I couldn't go to the media because it was all hearsay. There was no proof. It was just a bunch of you know rumors over lunch. Mm. Couldn't go to court for the same reason. There was no evidence. And so I sat there with feeling like I was sitting on this unbelievable sort of treasure trove of something, but not, not really knowing what to do with it. And I was frustrated and, and kind of disappointed and wishing I had some breakthrough. And then about three weeks after the last interview, my head of research, a guy named Vadim Kleiner, um, is driving his car through Moscow. And he gets to a place called Pushkin Square. And Pushkin Square, the traffic snarls up really, really badly. So badly that you, if you're unlucky, you could be sitting there for an hour. If you're lucky, 15 minutes. And as a result of these traffic jams, these young uh, street urchin kids um, try to sell things to people who are stuck in their cars. They're selling mm. uh, cigarettes and pirated DVDs and pantyhose and all sorts of things. And Contraband, any kind of contraband. And this is back before the days of, of um, cell phones where you could like you know look at your phone while you're sitting in traffic. And so some kid comes up to his window and, and uh, knocks and he rolls it down and he says, what do you got? And the kid said, databases. And Vadim looks at him sort of quizzically. What do you mean databases? And um, the kid says, uh, he opens up his, he has this dirty down parka. He opens it up and he has all these like folders, these translucent folders with these discs in it. Vadim points towards one of them and says, what's that? And the kid says, the Moscow Registration Chamber database. And this is something that, that like, um, this, this is the database that shows like the beneficial ownership of all Moscow-based companies and something we've been looking for. And Vadim said, well, how much? Honestly, this is like crazy. It's insane. And, and Vadim says, how much? And the kid says, five bucks. So Vadim buys the disc, comes back to the office, uh, and he says, I, guess what? I've just bought the Moscow Registration Chamber database for five bucks. And I said, you've been ripped off for sure. And he said, let's see. And, and I should point out, this is well before the days of computer viruses. So we stick this disc in the computer. <laughs> and sure enough, it's all bells and whistles, Moscow Registration Chamber database. But the best part was when we popped the disc out, there was a phone number on the disc you could call for other databases. And so we called the number and we got the Russian Securities Commission database, the Customs Committee database, all sorts of other databases. And indeed, Vadim did get ripped off because the other databases were only $1. And so, so basically what had happened is in Russia, the guys working in the ministry as the most bureaucratic country in the world, they're not being paid anything. And so they're putting up all this information for sale. So we bought all the databases. We could then compare those databases with all these anecdotes that we had heard over lunch, dinner, tea, coffee, dessert. And we came up with the most remarkable discovery I've ever, ever in economic discovery I've ever seen in my entire life which is that between 1996 and 1999, the management of Gazprom had stolen oil and gas reserves equal to the size of Kuwait. So remember, there's a war fought over oil and gas reserves the size of Kuwait in Kuwait, the first Gulf War. And we just discovered a similar type of crime at Gazprom. So that was the first most impressive economic statistic I had ever seen. The second most impressive economic statistic is that Gazprom the reserves the size of Kuwait only represented 9.65% of Gazprom's total reserves. In other words, 91% of the company is still there. Now, this is a company that's trading at a 99.7% discount because everybody is assuming everything has been stolen. And we could now prove effectively scientifically that almost everything is still there. So as an investor, what do you do with that? 
you back up the truck. And I bought as much Gazprom as I could get my hands on. I made it my single largest investment in the fund. I then did something very interesting, um, which is that instead of just leaving it as it is and waiting for the world to discover this, I uh, shared it with the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and, and Business Week and, and New York Times. They each wrote a story. On the back of those stories, then the Russian press wrote stories. On the back of those stories, then the parliament began debating whether it was a good thing or bad thing for these assets to be stolen. More stories. On the back of that, the uh, management had hired a, uh, an accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, to write a report saying it was a good thing for these assets to be stolen. More stories. And by the time uh, we were all done, there was like 500 stories. And then Vladimir Putin, this is in 2001, he was newly sort of elected president. He steps into the fray and he fires the CEO who is doing all the stealing and replaces him with a new guy whose job it was not to steal assets. The guy could steal uh, everything else, just not assets. But just making the announcement that, that no more assets were going to leave the balance sheet of Gazprom, the share price doubled. And then it doubled again, and it doubled again, and it doubled again, and doubled again. And it kept on doubling and doubling until the share price was up 100 times oh my from when I first started this whole campaign. 100 times. And this is not some, this is my biggest investment. It's not some micro cap, you know, venture capital thing. This is the largest company in Russia, 100 times. I made billions of dollars. I mean, it was just the most unbelievable uh, trade of all trades. I mean, not just my best trade, but anybody's best trade. It was just unbelievable. But the, there's a bad part of the story, which is my either third or fourth, depending on how you want to define it. Yeah, it's it's the it's the it's the fourth. Yeah, because it's like the back the the flip side of this. By the way, it's very often in this podcast that people's best trade is also turns out to be their worst trade or vice versa. So you're sitting on billions. Is it realized gains or is it paper gains at this point? Um, well, so here's what happened: the people who were getting doing all the stealing that I was exposing, and by the way, I, st I kept on exposing the stealing not just that year, but after the new guy came in. And the people who were doing the stealing started getting really angry with me. And so in November of 2005, after I'd been living there for 10 years and I was now sitting on a, on a fund worth $4.5 billion, I come, I'm flying back from London to Moscow for, from a weekend trip abroad, and I'm arrested at Sheremetyevo Airport. Uh, they arrest me. They put me in the um, detention center of the airport. They keep me there overnight, 15 hours. And then they deport me the next day and declare me a threat to national security. And now it's a pretty terrible thing to be a specialist on Russia and be kicked out of your own country. But I understood that the Russians could go a lot further than that. And so I looked around and said, what else could they do to me? And they could arrest my people and they could seize my assets. And so what did I do? I um, evacuated my entire staff and their dependents. And then once they were safely out, we quickly and quietly liquidated everything we held in Russia. And so it went from unrealized to realized gains. We got all of our money out mm. and we got it out safely. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. So from, from a financial perspective, um, this was the best trade and it was a realized trade. Mm. But it was the non-financial stuff that happens next, which is where the nightmare is. So um, 18 months after I was expelled, the um, police raid my office in Moscow. And they, they raid the office of an American law firm I use. And they're looking specifically for the stamp seals and certificates for our investment holding companies. They find them 
at the law firm's office. They seize them. And the next thing I know, we no longer own our investment holding companies. They've been transferred to a guy convicted of manslaughter. And um, now I was really worried about this, not for financial reasons, but if the police are working with criminals to steal companies, what else are they going to be doing? I I thought I think I'd be arrested. I thought I'd be arrested someday when I'm walking through Frankfurt Airport. So I um, go out and hire the smartest lawyer I know, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. Um, I ask him to investigate and stop whatever's going on. Sergei goes out, he investigates, and he comes back and he says, I figured out what they were trying to do. First, they were trying to steal your money. They didn't succeed. However, the second part of their scam, they did succeed. And the second part of the scam was when we were selling everything in that particular year, we we declared a profit of a billion dollars and we paid $230 million of capital gains tax to the Russian government. And what Sergei had learned was that the people who stole our companies went back to the tax authorities and they filed an amended tax return and they said this $230 million was paid in error. And on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas, they asked for a $230 million tax refund, the largest tax refund in Russian history, and is approved and paid out the next day. Sergey and I were convinced it was a rogue operation and that if Putin and the guys at the top knew about this, they would, they would go and stop it and prosecute the bad guys. And so we filed criminal complaints, went to the media, and Sergey testified against the officials involved. But instead of arresting the people who did the scam, the people who Sergey testified against arrested him they put him in pretrial detention. They tortured him for 358 days. And they murdered him in Russian police custody on November 16, 2009, 13 years ago. So that, by far, was the worst thing that's ever happened. I mean, it's on, you know, everything else was all fun and games, all, you know, whatever problems we had were virtual. But now a guy who was my lawyer, my friend, was murdered in the most horrific way after being tortured for 358 days in prison for, for basically being my lawyer. And since his murder, I've made it my life's work to go after the people who killed him. And I've given up my life as a fund manager. And I've devoted all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energy going after the people who killed Sergei to make sure they face justice. And uh, that's led to um, all sorts of things, including the passage of a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act, named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of people who killed him and people who do similar types of crimes. The Magnitsky Act was passed in the United States in 2012, and it now exists in 34 countries, including Canada, the United Kingdom, the European Union, Australia. And um, we've also gone after the money um, that they stole, and we've uh, investigated for nearly 13 years the money laundering component And whenever we find it, we report it to the law enforcement authorities of different countries. And there's now uh, freezing orders in place in a number of countries going after the money. And um, by by, um, looking at all this stuff, by digging into the stuff, we've discovered much bigger crimes than just the crime committed against us. And we really, you know, sort of very unlucky by by being victimized. I've now seen the true nature and the exact nature of the Putin regime, which is a it's a criminal organization set up to steal money and kill people that stand in the way. And they've done a lot of killing and a lot of stealing since they got started. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's just, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for us, for anyone who hears that story, and we've spoken about it before, to, to wrap your head around the sort of magnitude of that. But for you personally, I know how painful it was to feel responsible. I mean, you can hear it in your voice for what happened. At the time, the way you described you're dealing with the oligarchs and it was it was difficult. People were stealing. It was chaos. There were criminality. But it sounds like you did not expect this. You did not expect them to do this. No. So basically, it went from it went from highly disorganized crime highly organized crime, organized under the auspices of the president of the country. And nobody is immune from the organized crime that exists in the Putin regime. And it's just truly pernicious, <clears throat> evil, and murderous. And, and Sergei's story is only unique in one, in one respect, which is that I've been going around the world telling it to anyone who will listen. I've written two books about it. I've gone on hundreds, if not thousands, of <clears throat> news shows and lectures and podcasts telling the story. I've met with government officials and politicians in most every country. Everybody knows his story, but it's not unique. His story is just one of hundreds of thousands of stories of hostage-taking, of violence, of death, of torture, um, to steal money. And the really sad part about it is I've been telling this story, trying to use this story as a way of waking people up to what Putin is really all about. And nobody wanted to really hear it. I mean, yes, they did in the sense they passed the Magnitsky Act, but so many governments just wanted to continue to treat Putin as if he was a normal head of state, to continue to buy gas from Russia, to go to the World Cup, to, to take Russian investment in, in deals in the West. And in doing so, and in looking the other way as Putin did this type of crime and many other very much more visible crimes like invading Georgia, taking Crimea, bombing Syria, we basically set the framework and the ground to, to give him the encouragement effectively to do what he's doing in Ukraine right now. And that's the really tragic part of this whole story. But I want to circle back, if we could, to, to the first trade, um, the yeah. going to Russia. Because it didn't make sense when we first started the conversation why that was a bad trade. Yeah. But people ask me, and and they say, um, you know, what would you have done differently, Bill? And my answer is that once I got once I got locked into the whole situation in Russia, you know, of seeing the corruption, I wouldn't have stopped fighting the corruption. When we discovered the crime, I wouldn't have not exposed the crime. If when Sergei was killed, I wouldn't have not fought for justice. But the one thing that I would have not done is if I could have done it all over again. When I graduated from Stanford, I could have stayed in California where, you know, I, who knows, maybe I, I'd be much richer right now and, and, and nobody would be trying to kill me and Sergei Magnitsky would be still alive and, and uh, I'd have a pleasant and gentle life dealing with people where the, you know, the, the worst thing that happens is, you know, you uh, disagree with each other about a marketing plan or something. But instead, you know, uh, Sergei was killed. The other people have been killed as a result of this uh, story. Um, they've tried killing other lawyers in a, that, that worked for us. Um, they've tried poisoning one of my uh, uh, Russian allies. I mean, it's just 
the most horrific thing. And and I would gladly not have done any of it, not made any of the money if I could have somehow uh, uh, avoided that. That's the the hard question I was going to ask you when you when you look back at this. Do you think that you were lured by the money? Did you make a deal with the devil because there was so much money involved? I mean, yes, you were flagging corruption, but you were making a lot of money off it. Do you think that that blinded you to the danger? No, I I, I think that once I saw the corruption, it wasn't a matter of money or not money. I mean, money was was the you know it's my responsibility looking after my clients. It was uh, my 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 reason for challenging the corruption was that it was just so horrible, and the, it just made it just you know it was unfair, unjust, and disgusting, and I just couldn't do nothing about it. And that's just who I am. I just couldn't I couldn't sit there and look the other way and be and effectively looking the other way as supporting it and being part of it. And I just couldn't do that. Or you could have left, right? You were there for a really long time, and you made. You had other good traits. You could have left at any point and said, "This is too much. It's too much." Once you get to the place like that, I was looking. You know, I, I had responsibility for for thousands of clients, and I couldn't just leave. I mean, that was not that didn't feel like an option to me. Did you ever meet Putin in person? I've never met him. I've never met him or or had any kind of conversation with him. But I think we both know each other well now. <laughs> you know, he he has been chasing me all around the world, trying to have me arrested through Interpol. And extradition requests, and still muttering my name, still to this day. By the way, I mean, yeah. And he at the at the Helsinki summit with Trump, he asked Trump to hand me over. His general prosecutor after that said Bill Browder shouldn't sleep peacefully at night. I mean, these are people that are really bad people. You don't really want to be on the other side of who are furious with me, and they're furious because I, I went after the thing that they value most, which is their money, and. Uh, they're ready to kill for money and and have somebody try to take that away from them is just the most unforgivable sin in their minds. And we've seen them reach across into, you know, into England, into uh, into many countries and you know, their mysterious things have happened. How do you live with that pressure that they're still after you? Well, I've been living with it for almost 13 years now and um you kind of find ways to adjust to it. I mean, it's um I mean, I guess some people would have I don't know, imploded, but, but I found a way of, of, um, you know, there's, I've got to be careful. I, I have to take precautions in a lot of different ways, but, but I've also, um, found a way to live with it. And, um, you know, in a certain way, you know, I, I look at the Ukrainians right now and I wonder how people can carry on trying to have normal lives in Kiev when a bomb could drop on them at any moment. Everybody just, you know, takes their circumstances and tries to do the best they can. Do you feel like people see Putin the way you do now, I mean, this has been a, a, a you know a seminal event, the war in Ukraine. Do you feel like people finally understand the message you've been trying to send? They finally do. Too late, but they do. And um, I'm not I'm not in the wilderness anymore. You know, people used to really like not like me. Uh, you know, I go to Davos, the World Economic Forum, and you know, Western business people wouldn't invite me to their lunches and dinners because they didn't want to have like you know might mess up plans to make business with Russian oligarchs. Now I think I'm okay. You know, they, people people are like you know happy to see me now because everybody says you were right. You feel feel vindicated. What do you think happens now? We're seeing developments where Ukraine appear, apparently looks like they're you know they're pushing back. There's some reports of, I mean, uh, the soldiers retreating from Russia. I mean, it's hard to know what's actually happening on the ground in the fog of war. But w- what do you make of it? What do you think that means for Putin? Well. Um, 
I think it's amazing and great, and it's hugely boosting the morale of Ukraine. It's boosting the morale of the West, who are who we need to continue to support Ukraine. It's hurting the morale dramatically of of Russians. But I, I should caution everybody that it's, this is a very small proportion of the territory that Russians have taken that's been reclaimed. It's like less than 10%. And Russia has a huge amount of resources, troops, and malicious intent. And I know Putin real well. And he doesn't take humiliation well. He doesn't do humiliation well. And he will escalate. And so we have to, you know... Um, pat ourselves on the back and root for the Ukrainians and feel good about it, but understand that this is a long war. I doubt profoundly that this is the end of the war. Um, I'd be lovely and amazing if it was, but I think this is just, you know, a good blip, a good blip in the right direction. But, you know, this is going to carry on, unfortunately. Is this problem a Putin problem or do you think it runs deeper into the Russian psyche? So say Putin goes somehow. Is any chance the person who replaces him is a new start for Russia, or could it be worse and or the same? It, it all depends. On, I don't think it'd be worse. It all depends on on how Putin goes. If he gets if he's eliminated in a popular uprising, then Alexei Navalny can become the next president of Russia. If he were to um, die in his sleep or get taken out in a palace coup, then it could just be another guy just like Putin. You know, it's. Um, I don't think there's anyone worse than Putin. I think he's as bad as you get. And, and um, we shouldn't worry about that. But um, it really depends very much. But, I, but one thing I can say is if the Ukrainians do succeed in getting rid of Russian troops on their territory, Putin will be gone. Bill, we're, I, got, I got more questions, but we're out of time. So I'm just going to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was fantastic to catch up with you again. Great to see you. Thank you for the great questions and um, hope to see you again soon. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.